Pushkin. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is accelerating innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at tmobile.com slash now. Did you know some travel credit cards offer 10 times points on your spending? Don't miss out on big rewards for your next trip. NerdWallet lets you compare smart travel credit cards side by side, curated by an expert team of finance nerds. What could future you do with better travel rewards? A free flight? A room upgrade? Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. Reminder, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. Our kids have said to us since we've moved to Minnesota, we are far more active than we've ever been anywhere else we've ever lived. Moving to Minnesota opened up a lot of doors for us. Just this overall sense of community, of the values that, you know, Minnesotans have. It's a real accepting, loving community, especially with two young kids. See why CNBC ranks Minnesota number four best state to live and work. A great place to work, an even better place to live. ExploreMinnesota.com slash live. This is Talk Easy. I'm Sam Fragoso. Thank you for being here. Before we get into the show, I wanted to start with what happened in the Breonna Taylor case this week. By now, you have likely heard her story. Taylor, a 26-year-old hospital worker, was shot multiple times in her own home on March 13th by three police officers. This past week, we learned that none of the three officers who fired bullets in this woman's house will be charged with murder or manslaughter. One of the officers, Brett Hankinson, has been charged with wanton endangerment for firing into a neighbor's apartment in Louisville. It seems the court is willing to give justice to a neighbor's apartment before giving justice to a woman's life. Earlier this month, Officials agreed to pay Taylor's family $12 million in a settlement. There is no amount of money that will bring Taylor back. This verdict, however, could have been a start and instead has turned into a colossal misstep in a time where we desperately need police accountability and reform. In the coming weeks, we'll be having conversations around this very subject with writer Claudia Rankin, Representative Ilhan Omar, trauma specialist Resma Menakin, and Dr. Cornell West. For now, for today, my heart is with Brianna Taylor and her surviving family. These conversations here on this show are not enough, but I know they are a start. So, I know everyone here on this show is committed to doing the work that uh, needs to get done. And I just hope, whoever you are, 
wherever you are right now, that you are staying safe as we work to make the changes that need to be made. For now, let's get to our show. Today on the show, I am pleased to have on Miranda July. She's written books of fiction like No One Belongs Here More Than You and The First Bad Man. She's written for magazines like Harper's and The New Yorker. She's created participatory art pieces like New Society and Somebody. She's directed films like Me and You and Everyone We Know and The Future. She has made art across all mediums, in a way few others can or even try to. Her entire body of work is examined in a new monograph called Miranda July, Out Through Random House. We've included a link to that beautiful retrospective in our show notes at www.talkeasypod.com. Her latest project is a new film called Kajillionaire. Starring Evan Rachel Wood, Gina Rodriguez, Richard Jenkins, and Deborah Winger, it's set around a family of small-scale swindlers in search of something, anything. Here's a bit from the trailer. After this person. And clear. Now. There's a camera there, there, and there. Cash. Nope, mini order. This is not a cheap tie. Most people want to be cajillionaires. That's the dream. That's how they get you hooked. Hooked on sugar, hooked on caffeine. Ha ha ha, cry, cry, cry. Me, I prefer to just skim. So do I. February, March, April? Uh, we may have to pay an installment. Rent is an installment. It's a monthly installment. They are real characters, super unique. But you vouch for them, right? She learned to forge before she learned to write. Oh, actually, that's how she did learn to write. My favorite movies are the Ocean Eleven movies. This is exactly the kind of thing that I've been wanting. So what do your parents do, hon? Hon, you've never called me that. But you could if it was a job, though, right? When Miranda's first film, Me and You and Everyone We Know, came out in 2005, Roger Ebert, rest in peace, described her work as containing this kind of fragile magic. I've always loved that description, fragile magic. And it's true across all mediums, on the stage, on the screen, on the page. There is a fragile magic at play in July's work a worldview full of childlike wonder. The best way I can describe the experience of watching her work, at least for me, is you remember that feeling of sneaking off to a matinee showing in the middle of the day. The film ends, you leave the theater, and in that moment of re-entering outside, the sun blinds you for a second. Slowly, your senses return, but everything around you appears slightly askew. 
everything, all the people, the shops, the cars, they're suddenly rendered anew. July's work, including Kajillionaire, has this kind of blinding and resetting effect. To set the scene, when Miranda and I sat down, it was at the end of the week, on a Friday, around 5 p.m. That's a strange time to be talking to a stranger, and an even stranger time to have that conversation be recorded. (laughs) But we did it. Kajillionaire is so much about the peculiar bonds we form, or don't form, with our parents. And so, this conversation, as you're about to hear, spends a lot of time unpacking July's past and present, as a daughter and as a mother, in a time like the one we're in. I hope this conversation offers you some refuge and some light. I know those things are hard to come by these days. So, without further ado, here is Miranda July. I feel like we just ran a marathon. <laughs> did, are we done now? Thank you so much. This was great. <laughs> Miranda, it's been so nice sitting with you. No, between like dropping it off in your green box. I know. And, and then you know what? I like, I can tell you this now. Are we, are we rolling or no? We can just jump into it. Go ahead. Okay. So what happened? <laughs> well, so you, you know, nicely dropped off this expensive looking microphone and stuff in my, in the box on my the porch of my studio. And I did get the text that it was there. And then I just completely forgot about it, of course. (laughs) And um, Elizabeth, my assistant, like texted kind of late, or I looked at it late. Anyways, it was I was getting in bed. It was midnight. And I texted Elizabeth like, I forgot. Oh, well, hopefully it won't get stolen overnight. And then I was like, no, and I got out of bed. I got in the car in my pajamas. And it was very striking to me because I was like... You're kidding. Like my pajamas are not clothes, you know? Like my my vagina is basically out, but I am but I just threw a, a light coat on over everything, you know? <laughs> and some tennis shoes and like went and got the thing and put it in the studio <laughs> and came home and I was like, wow, that was... It's late. Yeah, but it's safe. And I, I felt so relieved that I didn't have that. It just was going to be so awful to have to be like, so quiet because I was faking that there was a microphone. <laughs> but there wasn't one because it was stolen. And I'm like, mm, yeah, absolutely. Yep. Does it sa- doesn't sound good. I don't know why. <laughs> <laughs> so for people listening, I did not know any of this happened till right now. Wow, I'm I have so many. Th- I'm processing so much of that. I shouldn't have told you. I mean, it's all fine. So why even go into it? You know. I'm so glad you did, because it immediately makes me feel like you're a good person. Slash fuck up. <laughs> <laughs> That's your slash. That's your okay. slash. I'm not adding that. Okay. Okay. So on the other end, I hmm. felt anxiety about it because I was like, it is like 
four hundred dollars <laughs> totally and then i was like well she's really busy and i i don't know her well at all and i texted you once and i was like i don't even want to do one text because it's weird to get a text from a stranger right well do you notice the text came rather late oh yeah yeah <laughs> which i was surprised by yeah i thought he'll just think like oh i just remembered to text him at the end of a long day now in retrospect can you appreciate how I just wrote like all good safely inside like as if it hadn't just happened I can completely appreciate it yeah this speaks to you being a writer and an actor <laughs> yeah. and performer yeah the, the amount of emotional foresight that you're putting into these texts yeah. because it totally read as oh yeah she just took care of it great yeah my people did it for me <laughs> well now that you've set the scene for listeners I wanted to start with where you're at right now in this moment. Because despite the difficulty of this year, there's been some good things happening in your life. You had this wonderful monograph come out, which surveys the last 20 years of your work. Me and you and everyone we know was added to the Criterion Collection. And now this new film of yours, Kajillionaire, is about to be released. So, with all that, how have you been processing these personal milestones amidst this historically painful moment? I was thinking about how this year, you know, I, as you said, I had this monograph come out, like a book of all my work to date, and this movie, Kajillionaire, you know, my first movie went into the Criterion Collection. I knew all these things were going to happen in one year, right? And I kind of joked to my friends this year is like my 401k. Like if I can like <laughs> play the game, you know, if I can kind of do the right things, maybe I can bump up a level to the point where I don't have to worry that I'm going to be very poor when I'm older, you know, which I'm now old enough that I'm like, oh, it's not necessarily going to like magically all change for the better. Anything could happen. But then this whole year changed, right? I mean, the idea that this year is going to um, be my 401k, which was an abstract thought. It had, you know, it was my way of saying like, there's some like authority to what's happening this year. You know, for a little while, I had this kind of panic slash wistfulness, you know, about the, the year that was missed. And what I've come to is that all those systems and hierarchies that I was hoping to ascend within stopped being able to function. They don't have their power to give. And the agility I've sort of honed my whole life is actually really useful now. Um, and I'm not just speaking for myself. I mean, it's a conversation among friends, you know, that sort of like, as it turns out, all those things that we were doing that seemed obscure or wrong or not taken seriously, these are now the, the tools that you survive with. And actually, it's sort of exciting. And I I wouldn't rather live the life of the person who was going to have the 401k year. I'd rather be the old woman in the future who had this year, actually. Like, in the end, it was never going to happen what I, that fantasy I had come up with. And this reality, for me, is kind of a, like a deepening thing. Like, I actually am going to become more the way and I'm going to have more faith in the way I was doing things. There's some kind of cosmic comedy that the year you decided 
to invest in something that you didn't really want to invest in in the first place just totally bottomed out? <laughs> yeah, I know. Luckily, it it all revolves around me. <laughs> this whole thing. <laughs> you know, I think historically, this has probably been the case again and again. There is a crisis and the existing structures stop functioning or become meaningless and other ways of thinking come into prevalence or power. You know, I say this because it's, I mean, we can look all around. I'm, I'm not, it's not like mm -hmm. something unique to me, this thought. Um, as we're both trying to find the right words for this yeah. moment, yes. I think you already wrote them. <laughs> so I'm going to quote you here. This is from No One Belongs Here More Than You. It is one of the only books I own that has a note from someone on the front of the page and a different person <laughs> on the back. You wrote here, in the reoccurring dream, everything has already fallen down and I'm underneath. I'm crawling, sometimes for days, under the rubble. And as I crawl, I realize that this one was the big one. It was the earthquake that shook the whole world and every single thing was destroyed. But this isn't the scary part. That part always comes right before I wake up. I am crawling, and then suddenly I remember. The earthquake happened years ago. This pain, this dying, this is just normal. This is how life is. In fact, I realize there never was an earthquake. Life is just this way, broken, and I am crazy to hope for something else funny <laughs> it's also slightly making me think like huh have i just had like one idea that i've been cycling through this whole time because i i've been talking a lot about the idea of the big one because it's it's in this movie that's about to come out and the, you know the big one in that movie is the, the big earthquake um i mean i did grow up in california like the um the big one's meaningful you know, the whole time I was like, what if the big one happens before when this movie comes, you know, like, and, and in fact, I'm pretty sure we're in the big one. <laughs> I think we are in the big one. At least it certainly feels big to me. What's been going through your head these past few months? At first I was very, um, you know, like I'm good in an emergency. So like I made a schedule right away. Like, okay, this is how our days are going to go now that there's no school. Like I'm the type of mom who like, if the child seems a little sick in the morning, I'm just like, are you kidding me? <laughs> I'm not like, oh, whoa, we get to spend the day together. I'll, can I'll cancel everything too. Day in bed. No, I have some things I need to do that on a very deep level are sustaining me and I would like to keep doing them and then we can meet up afterwards. Do you explain that to your child? I wish I had to, but I think it's pretty evident. Um, mm -hmm. <laughs> and the thing is, it's like already being done back to me so hard. Like Hopper, my child's name is Hopper. They are so stressed about the things they need to do and their projects, which are less realized than mine but no less large in scale and importance so it's already it's already kind of cycled back around and they don't really have time for me either you know 
<laughs> and in that list, though, in my sort of understanding of how I would live my life, there was also what is the bare minimum that I need to be okay? And that was like a private list, which was just, I need to be able to keep writing a little bit somehow. And I need to see my friend Isabel once a week, you know, as I have just an I think then I felt okay, like I can get through anything, adapt to anything, you know. But but of course, we didn't realize we were in shock. <laughs> like, isn't it strange to now be like, oh, now I've actually adjusted. I know probably not to the degree that I eventually will, but now I can look back and be like, oh, that was like a, you know, someone screaming in hell, but I thought I was you know, had it really together. Yeah. How much of your considerations as a new parent and then the considerations of your own parents growing up are in this new movie of yours? Well, I will say I wrote the whole like first draft of it without ever thinking about like my family or how I grew up or, or I, I mean, honestly, I was, I kept saying to Mike, like, this is so goofy. Like, I'm kind of embarrassed. You know, I don't know what this just all seems kind of like this silly heist stuff. Like, what? Like, that's not even my style. Like, and then I was like, well, you know, you just, just grateful to, that there's words, <laughs> printing them on the page. And, um, and then I got to the end and read it through and felt kind of punched in the gut, like a little gasping and tearful, only in the sense of like, oh, if I'd known it was about this stuff, I never would have written about it because it, it's like some real inherent betrayals in the parent-child relationship. So so that is to say, like, there's nothing literally, for the most part, you know, there's very few details that are literally like my life. And, and that's just not how I write. Like, I, I can really be truthful, like emotionally honest, if I'm sort of on a flight, you know, on a on something that has wings, that's its own story, and then it just kind of all comes out. But I mean, I was the kind of teenager who um, I would feel so guilty when, you know, I was rebelling all over the place and stuff, but I would feel so guilty after I left the house um, that night to go whatever, to the puncture or whatever, that I almost couldn't keep going. Like I almost just wanted to go back. And sometimes I would call and more or less just kind of apologize <laughs> for having left. I know there's some things wrong with that and like I've had therapy and, you know, there's a lot of things like that in there as well as like, you know, old Dolio is kind of like every woman I've ever been in love with, you know, and, and to get to make like an ode, like a owed to that kind of woman and and have mm -hmm. like just you know pretty Gina Rodriguez fall in love with her you know um was a great joy you know it was like a, a very just very satisfying to me when you got to the end of the script and and it sort of sat there with you you said there were subjects that made you think oh god if i had known it was going to be about that maybe i would have not traveled down this road I think what it was, was that in having a child, I suddenly, like, I can't remember what it was like when I was a baby, or, but I suddenly saw 
what I think it should be like. Um, and it just, I got just very sad. I, um, it, uh, and like the more I learned about like what, what, what a baby needed, um, just the sadder I got. Um, and, um, and it's all cloaked in mystery anyways. I mean, honestly, like, I don't remember, like, I'll never, I'll never really know. Um, I know I didn't do the breast crawl, but then, (laughs) which is a thing in the movie, but, but then, you know, for various reasons, neither did my own child, you know, so that, um, but I guess I'd say that was the, the, the murky world that, um, that I was drawing from and I couldn't, it was mysterious and I, um, all I could, you know, and I was so grateful, I guess, that this came up like from my unconscious to kind of play it out, you know, because I don't, I don't know what to think. I don't know what to say. Um, I'm not our, certainly I'm not articulate about it, except in as much as I can make a movie about it. Like I can speak in that way, but to me, they're kind of unspeakable things because they're, um, uh, they're, they're that early, the, the memories, you know? Mm-hmm. Old, that old is the word that we use when we refer to memories. This is one of those parts uh, where the zoom is insufficient because I, I, I don't want you to feel alone in that part, you know? Well, I will say, thank you. I hear what you're saying. That's nice. You did. I get it. But one thing I would say is I'm okay because despite everything, this movie is coming out and I, it is held, you know, like it holds me and it actually, I think does my intention art wise is to have that thing that you wanted to give me, you know, and it comes in little pieces, you know, it's not like God comes down and finally like hugs me or something. Like I'm in the process now where, where that little kind of nod of recognition can come where you're suddenly like, ah, maybe, maybe I got that across that thing that it's hard for me to even speak about. What I loved about your movie is it felt like a breakup between child and parents. And if you're lucky and you have two parents that care even a little bit, many people don't, you have then another privilege um, or sort of reality, which is that you have to redefine the parameters of what a healthy relationship looks like. We had very different upbringings. You know, my parents were not writers banging on their IBM selects like yours. My parents didn't run a makeshift publishing house out of their home where you and your brother had to basically do all the menial work for them. (laughs) I do know what it's like to have to talk to your parents. And this way you talk to your parents through your movie and say, maybe not all of it was right. And 
I thought the beauty of this movie and what I wanted to ultimately ask you was when did you realize that your parents were fallible? It's funny, even though I had all these big dramatic rebellions in my 20s, you know, I like secretly dropped out of college and moved to another state without telling them. Um, the way in which you told them, maybe you share that. I don't, I don't <laughs> have to do it. You, you, should, I, you should say. I, um, it was on Christmas vacation, Christmas break. and I, Perfect timing. Yeah. They were on a trip, my parents were, and I gave my brother a cassette tape. And I said, when you pick them up at the airport, put this tape in and all you have to do is just hit play and don't nothing more <laughs> and um and the tape so he did that and the the tape begins you know by the time you hear this i will be living in portland oregon with my girlfriend um, <laughs> um and no longer attending uc santa cruz <laughs> um, and what was the tone of this voice note yeah i think the tone was sort of you know this is funny this kind of um fits because all so me and my brother were massive Mission Impossible the TV show fans, and that always starts with a, they put it they play a tape or maybe it's like a reel to reel, um, but it's like this mission if you choose to accept it, you know. Mm -hmm. Anyways, when people ask me about the heist aspects of Kajillionaire, like I, I wish I could cite like all the heist movies in film history, but really it's just those Mission Impossibles. <laughs> uh, but um, they were deeply influential, such that I think the cassette probably somewhat had that tone to it, you know, just sort of informing them. <laughs> this is uh, my new mission, and yeah. I am leaving. <laughs> yeah, even if you don't accept this ever, and to this day suggest that I maybe should go back to college. Um, <laughs> now? Yeah. Not now, but, you know, really only within like the last maybe eight years uh -huh. Did my dad stop saying like, you know, it's not out of the question that you get just like your BA or, you know. So when you're on the stage accepting the palm door, they're like, what about going? Cam camera door. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. Thank, thank you for the correction. Yeah. No, it's good. It's good. <laughs> <laughs> they might take it back if I like let that go by. So I have to. <laughs> sure. And so your parents say. Even then, maybe. Oh yeah. Get get a BA. You could. No, totally. That was in top form. They with that movie, my my first movie, me and you and everyone we know, we were trying to get like financing wise initially, just like any any person we knew who might have like an extra five thousand dollars or something to invest. So I asked one of my mom's friends, and later, like after the movie came out, and actually did so well that certainly anyone who invested in it, which ended up just being IFC, you know, and film for made their money back, you know, mm -hmm. over and over again. That friend was said, you know, I'm so mad because it was your mom who told me not to invest. <laughs> and I'll never forgive her because we could have really used the money. Um, and I was like, are you kidding me? And and I, I think she was just trying to be a good friend. You know, she's like, you know, you don't have to do this. It's very unlikely to show a return. And <laughs> mm -hmm. 
I was like, oh, thanks a lot. So that was the moment where you realized they were imperfect? Yeah, it wasn't until I had my first therapy. So I had already moved here to LA. So it was right around when I made my my first feature. That therapist, a lot of the time, she would just act out like what a normal thing would be. Like we spent most of our time, she would just kind of be like, ah, right. Well, okay, let me just tell you another way that could have gone, you know? Uh Um, And I was scandalized. (laughs) I was like, are you kidding me? What? Like it could have gone like that. It could have gone like that. Like I just, it was, it was shocking to me. Although I will say, I don't think she was a very good therapist because I, this one time I did something kind of scandalous, sexually speaking, Mm -hmm. and she showed judgment on her face. (sighs) that she couldn't hide. And I remember being like, oh, I'm a novice at this, but I I know that's a no-no. Like, you should not be shaming me for that clearly wrong thing I did sex-wise. You described your upbringing as being part of this, like, sort of familial snobbery. Mm. And I bring this up because in the aftermath of you going to Portland, of you performing in bands, slowly writing, figuring out what you wanted to do, finding your footing, you um, make me and you and everyone we know. And some executive at the time, I believe at IFC, asks you, who do you think this film is for? And you said, without a beat, everyone. You saying everyone is in direct conflict with an upbringing that said only certain people are interesting. How did you reconcile that? The scary thing about the idea of only certain people are interesting or there's there are like special people is that as a daughter, <laughs> like you really want to make sure to be one of those people, you know? <laughs> That could be very bad if you ended up being just like other people. And you probably never will be, right? It's kind of, I mean, if that even exists, then you're never safely, you're never safe, right? So I think I had to like change the rule. Almost like if you fail to see the ways that all different kinds of people are interesting, then you're not special. (laughs) I mean, or at least for a while, that's how... I turned that back around and had, you know, militancy about that, about if you want different kinds of people to be interested in what you're doing, you can't just be interesting. You have to actually invite them in, you know, like in in subtle ways, like you have to not assume that that there's something inherent about you, like you have you have to be interested in inviting them in. On your creativity, your friend, Lindsay Beamish, she wrote, any feeling, any frustration, any crush, any standing in the way would just immediately be manifested into her art. This is about you, in case people are wondering. So the people she meets, Joe or the cobbler or the Uber driver, are important to her not just because they become material or are used for her art, 
but because they fuel her life force. And that life force is what fuels her creativity and art. And that creativity and art is her main entry point for her experience of being alive. That was very satisfying to me when, when I saw that, you know? I was like, oh, I, I do believe that's, that's correct. Like, I, I've actually had a, a sort of a, a new relationship to add to that list. I'll just say very briefly, like on day one of the pandemic, I got a phone call that was clearly like a telephone solicitation, like a, a scam, actually. Um, and I, I think because I, I was so thrown by like the school shutting down and everything that was happening that day, I just stayed on the phone <laughs> with this person and answered their survey, their weird questions. And then at the end of the whole survey that I did, I, I said, can I ask you some questions now? You know, and I said, where are you? They were in the Philippines. How old are you? 27. They turned out to be a trans woman. And I've stayed in touch with them this whole six months. And we've been working on something together. It's a very unequal relationship. That is the essence of it. Because, well, for evident reasons, this person's like working at a call center, you know, in the Philippines uh, for $3 an hour. But I pay her. Anyways, um, it's for a project, right? It's for my work. But I began to realize that my days were okay. Like when people would say pandemic-wise, like, how are you doing? I would be able to be like, I'm fine, actually, if things were going well with Jay in the Philippines. <laughs> but if we were out of touch, as sometimes I wouldn't be able to reach her or just some, there'd be some sort of kink in the line of our communication. I just, it all, I'd be like, fuck, I don't know how I'm doing. I, not well, you know, when Lindsay said like, it fuels her life force. It's like, I haven't really known how true that was until it was like tested um, in the last few months. And I, I would say, yeah, it's um, somehow it really does. Why do you think you're so curious in people? Oh, I don't, I, I, I don't think I am actually. I actually think I'm sort of standoffish and like really just want to be alone and left, left alone. <laughs> um, uh, you can finish this podcast off if you want me to leave. <laughs> yeah, that would be a lot easier for me. Um, okay, great. No, 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 no. <laughs> um, is by way of saying it's not that I'm like a huggy person, you know, and just going around the world being like, oh, come here, you. Like, you have a friendly face. You look like a lover. Like, I don't say things like that. It's more that like I'm in my like biosphere of myself occasionally, very rarely actually. I'll receive a signal. It'll feel kind of like that. And I'll think, oh, go, you know, like act on this now. This is, this like the door is open for a second. So I try and be open to that, but otherwise sort of very introverted almost. Yeah. It's interesting how you speak of introversion because often when people write about your work, they say your films are all about connection. People deeply connecting with one another. Mm. And to that characterization, you've said, that implies people are really connecting and knowing each other. But I'm not sure that's even really possible. It certainly doesn't happen in my work. 
Before we move forward, I want to know, Miranda, do you really feel that way? Well, no, they do connect. So that was a lie. But I think the thing that I'm pouring my energy into is the unique ways that they, you know, stand and they make that difficult. And mm-hmm. so I guess when people say, you know, your work is about connection, it's just like, you know, maybe the last few seconds of the movie, you know, sometimes and often in a short story, not really, you know, I feel like it's harder in a movie to get away with like no connection. Although I think the future does a pretty good job of that, not making that resolution happen. Anyways, I think that's my point is like that label is very appealing, (laughs) the connection one, but I don't think it fits. The sentiment that people are really connecting and knowing each other, the sentiment that that's not possible in your mind, (laughs) it really kind of broke my heart, I have to say, because my relationship um, to what I have read of yours, I think back to my freshman year of college and thinking I felt more of a connection to the fictional characters in this book than the people in my dorm. Not that it undercuts the work, because I can separate the two very easily, but it made me wonder if you really felt that for yourself, or if you felt like you had a hard time connecting. Yeah, I mean, what you just said, though, about connecting more to the characters than to the people in your dorm, like that would support that thesis, right? That there is... There is something sublime that we actually do that is maybe not possible with with other people. Um, but I do think connection is possible. I mean, I, I wouldn't say that I need to meet my friend once a week to survive the pandemic, you know? Um, it's just that I think this, this, this idea of that you connect and you just stay connected or that you find someone and then, you know, this, that connection is, is like any kind of consciousness or something. It's, it's very fleeting and like it's unstable. And it's when you really, really feel it, it's kind of almost always bittersweet because it's not a state that, Mm -hmm. that is like that lasts. It's not permanent. Not to say, I don't mean that like love doesn't last or something, but literally, you know, like, you have these moments, but you never think like, oh, we're going to stay in this high from now on, (laughs) you know? So I think maybe my bar is pretty high, first of all, maybe higher than yours Uh, (laughs) for connection. Like I'm talking, (laughs) I'm just kidding. That was low. Keep going. (laughs) I I think you've done a good job, this this podcast. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I think like this perfect connection, like what I thought was going to happen before I'd ever had sex or, you know, a boyfriend or girlfriend or anything was that you would enter like a shared dream together. And that's turned out to be fleeting, you know, like it's there's moments and I I didn't, I just didn't get that at all, you know, and I'm still really sad about that. And still working for it, you know? I mean, I, I, I'm I like killing myself for it, but I now see that it exists in all these different 
unexpected ways, my view of it is widened. You've said that you're using your desires as a kind of engine. When you're in your 30s, by then you've burnt out those desires and you're finding other reasons or maybe the real reasons why you had those desires in the first place. Where are you at in your 40s? Oh, gosh, I can't, I can't put it into words. It's like clear to me how it's different from those two things that I sort of stand by, actually. I feel like there's no small stuff anymore. Like all the things I do, just like it's okay for everything to be important, you know, to not do things that are not important. Like that's, it's not even like a thought anymore. It's just a given. And, and that now it becomes clear that like feeling deeply about each thing is all there is like that there isn't some reward for the work that comes, you know, like the, the, there's rewards and stuff, but that it's mostly going to be the work, <laughs> you know, there's no great thing, no party that's going to be thrown. That's like so amazing. Um, and, and you're not going to get to s- some place actually now it's also like, if I could just keep doing this to the end now, that would be great, you know, which that's a kind of new thought. Like you don't think much about the end, but when you're halfway through, you're like, oh, this is great. Please let me be able to just consistently do this. And that that is ambitious enough, you know, it's not so much about like an ascension. What would you like to keep doing? Just my work and my relationships. And then once you have a child, you think I want to get to keep, keep on being your mom, you know? Hmm. So like, we have to both keep being alive. Let's just both keep living so this can keep happening. Like that becomes the new like birthday wish on the candles. You're talking about being a mother. And I thought about this movie and the big one is in this film in some ways. And Mm -hmm. we are in this moment that is so unprecedented that it routinely forces you to ask yourself what matters, how you want to spend your time. And I wondered for you, especially in the context of this movie, but outside of it, what kind of mother you want to be down the line? I mean, I used to have a clearer idea of that because it was more mine for the taking I could just invent it you know but now this this person my child is getting so persony you know that um that I sort of don't feel like I have like a a set you know like this is a whole person's life um they'll get to do what they need to do and if I could keep being their mom and not have like I worry sometimes that it's sort of a dread. It's great having, you know, people, oh, it must be so fun to be your kid. Like you, you have all this childlike energy and creativity. And it's like, yeah, but actually the child is supposed to take up that spot, you know? Like, I guess I hope that I can't imagine not getting to be in opposition to your parents vis-a-vis your you know, radical creativity and sense of freedom and stuff. And it's not really something so much to worry about. I mean, this 
child is like no gender is, you know, already like sort of out paced me in, in every department, you know? Um, but that said, like, I, I guess I just want, I want it to feel like there was a ton of room, you know? And I guess that's why when I said that I'm like the kind of mom who's um, pretty upset when the kid is too sick to go to school that day, you know, so the pandemic would, you know, be then sort of a crisis. It's, that I think I keep a pretty kind of a boundary, you know, like who I, I have my own house that, you know, I spend the night there every Wednesday night so I can have one night a week when I wake up alone and, and can write and I work there all day, every day. And it's kind of like I can go be fully who I need to be and then I can come home and not have to, you know, I'm still myself, but it is a little bit of a, making smaller sort of like trying to just whatever I'm sharing the space and I take up a lot of room when I'm alone in my studio you know so so that's why it probably feels like a little bit of a crisis like if the kid can't go to school does that mean I can't where do I put me you know it's not even just like I have things to do it's like I have this sort of larger self I don't know how that's all going to play out that that everything I just described sounds a little problematic um we shall see i don't think it sounds problematic i I think it sounds like the truth okay it sounds like you're describing wanting something that people like your partner a man who's a director would be doing anyways wanting to be an artist and a parent is not really a consideration men make right i know (laughs) Yeah, I guess that's the thing. And, you know, actually, Mike is way less stressed out and that, you know, like if Hopper gets sick, it's not such a crisis to stay home for him. But I do think that's the reason it's not ever contested his very right to like this, this sense of self, you know, um, beyond his role as a father. Whereas it just is, it's really insidious because I've, I've never... Yeah, it's it's kind of like the most I've had to like consciously rebel against something, at least since I was like in my 20s and and like a lesbian separatist, basically. <laughs> since then. Yeah. It's the second biggest thing you've had to rebel against. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> so let's end on something that is squarely about you. Oh, good. More of me. There hasn't been enough on me in this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I agree. So so next podcast, you can ask about me if you want. Until then, I want to talk to you about this quote, especially within the larger context of your work. Mm-hmm. You recently spoke to your friend, Starly Kine, mm-hmm. and she said, Miranda told me recently that she doesn't feel like she's done anything really great, ever. I mean... It wasn't like a self-deprecating thing, because she's got confidence. It was like a bar that she has inside that lets her know what she has to keep pushing toward. She's clearly going toward something, and she doesn't feel she's there yet. I mean, if it was consciously on my mind, that would really fuck me up. You know, I wouldn't be able to do anything. And, and you know, I was kind of surprised when I, when I read that. 
And then I was like, ah, you know, I guess she's gleaning that from many, many conversations with me where I'm not, I mean, she just sees I'm not, I'm not satisfied. And as she says, I'm not like beating myself up, but there is this unrest. And I, I do believe that that's true for all artists. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's just innate. It's like this kind of state of agitation that is okay. You know, it's, it's like, it's like there's something kind of beautiful about longing and it's certainly you long things into being, you know, like as I'm writing a book now, it's like, I'm sculpting that longing, you know, and it, it's, it's very interesting. Like I, it could easily interest me this whole, for the whole duration of this life. So I don't ever think, ah, you know, one day I'll, I'll hit that high bar. Um, I think occasionally I look back and I'm like that, you know, years later, I'll be like, that one was pretty good. Although often then I'll check to see, wait, was it really good? And I'm like, oh yeah, except for that part. I forgot about that part. <laughs> I think it was about five years ago when you created that performance piece called New Society, which attempted to envision a different kind of social structure. And we started this conversation unpacking the difficulties of the pandemic. So I know this is a big ask. But in your reformed world, what do you want this all to look like? The best possible thing, future-wise, would be if nuance was allowed back in. And I think, though, to get there, there might have to be like a, a sort of taking apart of all systems, not in the sense of like, let's burn it all down, but like a just kind of questioning. That's another one of those things of like, you might not ever get there, but the ride could be really worthwhile and interesting. And I think the best way to look at it, because these, these questions get so vast, and then the answers become things that people can't really do anything with. Like the best way to think about it is literally in the next thing that you're going to go do, is there a different way that you could do it? <laughs> Not just for its own sake, but for like, almost like as a practice, like, can you, can you notice how you do things and why you do things? And, and that, that to me is always like, it never fails to be fruitful, especially if it's in relation to someone else, you know? And sometimes it's just like an energetic thing I'm always reminding if, if, yeah, if you're stuck in a kind of like unproductive relationship or you're pining for some sort of reaction from someone, you can, like, I'm thinking of this time I was driving a long drive with my boyfriend at the time and we were in a fight and I really just wanted more than anything for him to like soften towards me somehow. And, and I thought, oh, energetically, I'm like leaning so far over towards them that like I'm completely on them. And so inside, like I'm just sitting there, seatbelt on, just sitting in my passenger seat. Inside, I did this thing where I just 
brought myself back over onto me, onto my two feet, and was like, oh, right, I'm, I'm just me, you know, like I'm just this person. And in that instant, and it always happens like in the instant, like I think that's, this stuff is very quick in its effectiveness. Like he turned right then, you know, and said something, like it shifted, it completely shifted, like 180 and said, just said something, the kind of thing that lets you know that like, it's okay, you know? Um, and, and it was like, he was shifting towards me, you know, cause people can feel like, Oh, she's gone. Oh, now I want to like, you know, just sort of basic power dynamics. But I feel like those that's just in that dynamic, but those little shifts, like you can do those all the time throughout the day by being aware of what you're doing, of what's actually happening of yourself, that you are there, that this, this is all real. It's all really happening. Um, and so I guess I'm saying to to scale it down from like the vastness, because I mean, when you're in a fucking pandemic, like it's very hard not to talk in huge terms. I mean, it is literally global. But so I'm trying to think of the tiniest unit that I could think of, because that always helps me begin. So that's the one I'm going to offer, like just shift over back onto your feet. Speaking of nuance. <laughs> I appreciate every part of this conversation in all its messiness. Yeah, me too. Miranda July, thank you very much. Thank you. That's our show. Special thanks to Elizabeth Levitsky and Angela Vera. Miranda's new film, Kajillionaire, is now in select theaters across the country. If you can, please do support this film safely under the guidelines of your local health officials. To learn more about Miranda July, visit our show notes at www.talkeasypod.com. If you enjoyed today's episode, I think you may like other talks we've had with folks like Elizabeth Gilbert, Holland Taylor, Fran Leibowitz, Britt Marling, and Jenny Slate. You can find all of those and more on Spotify, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, wherever you do your listening. You can also follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at TalkEasyPod. And if you'd like to join our mailing list, you can drop me a line at sam at talkeasypod.com. This show is made possible each week by our incredible team. Our executive producer is Junixa Bravo. Illustrations by Krish Shenoy. Our associate producer is Nikki Spina. Our lead editor is Andre Lin. Our assistant editors are David Harding, Eli Weiss, and Rena Zhang. Our music is by Dylan Peck. Marketing by Patrice Lee. Our interns are Juliana Rector, Grace Perkins, and Ian Simmons. Graphics by Derek Gabrazak and Ethan Seneca. And finally, the show is produced by Caroline Reebok. I'm Sam Fragoso. Thank you for listening to Talk Easy. We'll be back next week with Claudia Rankin. Until then, much love to Brianna Taylor and her surviving family. 
She should be here today and tomorrow, and now it is on us to keep her legacy alive. Rest in peace, Miss Taylor. So long. Our kids have said to us since we've moved to Minnesota, we are far more active than we've ever been anywhere else we've ever lived. Moving to Minnesota opened up a lot of doors for us. Just this overall sense of community, of the values that, you know, Minnesotans have. It's a real accepting, loving community, especially with two young kids. See why CNBC ranks Minnesota number four best state to live and work. A great place to work, an even better place to live. ExploreMinnesota.com slash live. The tradition of breaking tradition continues with the return of the unconventional awards from T-Mobile for Business at Mobile World Congress. This is an event that celebrates innovators whose bold actions took their industries to new places. If that sounds like you and you're a T-Mobile for Business customer, enter today. If you win, you'll be publicly honored among some of the most influential leaders in industry. And me, I'll be there too. Enter now at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. See you there. Nobody wants to outlive their money, but it happens, especially for women. That's why Gainbridge offers the Parity Flex annuity, designed for women's unique retirement needs, with flexible withdrawals plus a guaranteed lifetime income benefit that keeps paying you even if your account balance is zero. Gainbridge is helping build a better financial future for women. Retirement income you can't outlive is the ultimate flex. Start saving now at Gainbridge.io. Visit Gainbridge.io slash ParityFlex for current rates, full product disclosures and disclaimers, and other important information.